This is Product Mastery Now, where product leaders and managers gain product mastery through practical knowledge, influence, and confidence. Your host is Chad McAllister, helping you become a product master, creating products customers love. Get ready for higher performance, for the doctor is in. Hello everyone, this is Chad, and today we're gonna be talking about prioritizing product features. And someone who's helping us with this has a big background in prioritizing product features and a lot of professional experience in that for at least 20 years now. His name is Kareem Mayan, and he is the co-founder of Savio. So we'll talk more about that company in just a moment, but it is a company that simplifies the collecting, organizing, and acting on customer feedback. And he's been a serial entrepreneur and previously a product manager and software developer as well. So quite a good journey for us to relate to as product managers. And as always, I like to tell you about the written notes that we take. So all during the discussion, we're going to be, I, I take some notes and then we type up detailed notes for you based on the, for an easy way to read through everything we talk about. And also there's a one page summary, an action guide to help you take action on the topics that we are talking about. So I encourage you to go get, go get those. You'll find those at productmasterynow.com slash three, five, seven. Kareem, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Chad. So I, I kind of teed up a little bit of your background there, but I love journey stories. And I would like to hear what your journey's been from software developer, a lot of product managers, that we come from many different roles, but we tend to come mostly from either a marketing, you know, customer-facing kind of role, or a developer development engineering sort of role. And would love to hear your journey from software to product, now to co-founder. What, what has that been like? Yeah, for sure. So I studied uh, psychology and computer science uh, at McGill University of Montreal in the mid to late 90s. And in 99, I think I got a job, a summer job, an internship at an enterprise software company called Backweb. And it was in their product management group. And I had no idea that that was even a thing. Like I was writing C programs for my CS classes and didn't really understand how, you know, the sausage got made. So that's my first exposure to that as, as like a functional area. And it was sort of neat, but I, I kept writing code because that just seemed like the thing that was easier to do and was sort of more interesting at the time. Um, and I said there's sort of three, three foundational moments, I guess, in my early on in my career that really shifted my focus. So the first was I ran across Joel Spolsky's blog in 2001 and basically devoured it and read his book called User Interface Design for Programmers. And so that, you know, there was a lot of talk to customers, watch what they're doing. And it really sort of gave me a clue that like, it's not just about the software, it's about, you know, the value that users get from this. The second was, I was working at ESPN at the time. We hired a company. I really drove the, the I was the champion, I guess, to hire a company called Creative Good based out of New York. And they did a lot of usability testing. And so, you know, we sat on one side of the glass. We watched a moderator with subjects use the software product that I was working on at the time, which was a fantasy football product. And it really again, underscored the value of seeing how customers use the product, understanding what their core problems are, and then and then solving them sort of elegantly. And then the third was I went to a workshop in 2004 with the Basecamp guys. It was called the Building of Basecamp. So they basically talked about how they built their V1 with DHH and Jason Freed. And the second half of that was called Redesigning by... So that was held by a company called Adaptive Path, which was a UI consultancy. Jeff Veen was a guy who sort of drove that with Janice Fraser, I think, was the, was the woman. And so like, you know... The, the, one of the core takeaways there, which, you know, the Basecamp guys have championed from day one, was that the interface, to users, the interface is the software. So to make good software, the interface has to align with the user's mental model. And so those three sort of events over, you know, a span of years really helped me see, like, I, I really feel like I should be, you know, understanding users' problems, helping design interfaces that work, and then shepherding the, the sort of how the sausage is made with the, with the dev team. And so I left, um, 
I was working after ESPN. I went to a company called Fox Interactive Media, which had I started just before they bought MySpace. So this is back back in the good old days when MySpace was bigger than Facebook. Mm-hmm. And I, I was director of product in their R and D lab there for about a year and a half, and then left in 07 to start a, an, an education marketplace company. So I, I led product there, hired the dev team, I worked closely with them, and then subsequent to that, I worked with my current business partner to build two SMB SaaS companies, one in the fitness space. Uh, and one selling a project management tool for software teams. And, you know, he and I are quite similar. I'd say I I span more customer facing. He spans more back end. But as a sort of co-founder of a small company, you wear all before you grow. And so we we both sort of weighed in heavily on the product and and dev side of things, as well as, you know, taking out the trash, capitalizing the company, et cetera. And then finally, I now am working on Savio. And again, same, same idea, working, you know, wearing all the hats. And over the years, we've bootstrapped some of the companies. And so I've done a bunch of coaching of director level PMs on down to junior level PMs. I've done a lot of in-house CPO stuff, you know, extra, extra sort of uh, hands on the, on the front lines of product as well earlier on in my career. So I've really seen and done, seen how a lot of organizations work and done a lot of, you know, frontline work all the way up to the, the C-level stuff. Yeah, very good. Thanks for sharing that story. Two questions and an observation. First, the observation. As you went through that, the one reason why I wanted to reach out to you was I did find your article online about prioritizing product features and then found out that the work that you're doing at Savio is uh, largely directed towards product managers. Sounds like probably customer service as well, but you, you engage with a lot of product managers. And so having had this experience in development and then product management and now engaging with so many product managers through your company on a product that is for them, but you have really good context to help us with this product feature issue. I guess only one question. The question was on uh, Basecamp. Do you re- remember where you did the Basecamp workshop? Was it in Chicago or somewhere? It was in San Francisco. Uh, okay. I was, in, I was in Connecticut at the time and, and a trip to rural Connecticut in Bristol. And so a trip to San Francisco sounded pretty awesome at the time for a 25-year-old. Okay. Because somewhere in there, around the same time frame, I did a Basecamp workshop in Chicago. And, and oh, I was just curious. and. And yeah, uh, that's yeah, funny. That, that was it was very valuable to hear about how they started the company, what they focused on, and and the likes. So, Absolutely. Okay. Excellent. So let's go and dive into prioritizing product feature requests. Obviously, your, your system helps to collect the information that is needed, but I want to talk through your process for actually, you know, what what do we do with information? What are the steps for prioritizing features? And you have an article on this, which I'll provide a link in the show notes for people that want to read your original article. I think it'd be really useful to talk about the steps now. And your first step is called get clear on your business goals. Yeah. What's that about? One of the one of the places I see teams struggle when I when I embed is that people aren't clear on what the company is actually trying to accomplish, and so you know you can you can churn and thrash a lot. You know, should we build this or that? But if you have a clear goal, you're trying to understand that you know, are you sorry, you're trying to increase expansion revenue or reduce churn or increase you know conversion. Once you once you identify, once leadership really identifies what the business goal is, it becomes a lot easier to narrow down the scope of what your feature candidates might be. So you know, this is this is honestly some, this is a hard exercise for a lot of leadership teams that that I see. I you know, I'll coach a director uh, of product, and their boss or their boss's boss, you know, the CEO is not giving clarity to you know to the product team about what to build, and so it's really hard to know whether you're going to make you know mild Italian sausage or like fennel and onion because, you know, the, the business is not giving you a clear direction. So that that's really the, the most important piece because it really limits, you know, what you might actually build once you understand what the, what the business is trying to accomplish. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, the way I think about that is in terms of organizational strategy. And when I'm working with product managers, product teams, I often find not a clear understanding, or frankly, uh, any understanding of what the organizational strategy is and the specific strategic objectives for some period of time, like maybe that year, right? And then we try to investigate that. And sometimes we find out that there isn't any clearly communicated strategic uh, objectives available. And other times we find out that there's maybe the VP of strategy that is quite certain that they've done a very good job. They talk about this all the time and everyone clearly knows what the strategy is. And yet, you know, I usually do groups of 14 people. No one sitting around that virtual table can articulate what the strategy is, right? So there's a communication breakdown there. And so understanding what the business goals are or those strategic objectives is important for our work to know how to do. And so I imagine like if the current strategy is to reduce churn and try to keep our customers around longer, that would clearly impact what we might do to our product versus, as you said, you maybe want to, to increase expansion for their market or something. Exactly right. Exactly right. Yeah, it's, 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 you know, I always, I find strategy difficult. So I, I point out, but when you're, you know, when you're wearing the product hat, if you don't have clear direction about what you're trying to accomplish as a business, it makes it very difficult to tell a compelling story, to, to identify what to build and tell a compa- com- compelling right. story about why. It leaves you subject to, you know, to why are we building this, not that? And we can sort of get to that later, but you, you really got to start with, you know, a good understanding of what the business is trying to accomplish. Yeah, there is the strategy that you throw anything against the wall and basically see what sticks, right? <laughs> see what has momentum yep. internally or with customers. That, that's messy and it messes up your wall. Okay, <laughs> your second step here is filter the feature requests based on what your most important customers want. Yeah, so this, you know, so step one is let's say let's say our goal is to win more deals. We want to we want to grow revenue by winning more deals. So if that's the goal, you should be able to quickly identify what the feature reasons are why your sales team lost deals in the past. If your goal is to reduce churn, you can look at what your current good customers or lighthouse customers, and you can also look at what features your churn customers asked for that you didn't build. Right. So there's a, you know, again, you sort of start with your master feature list and you're really trying each sort of each one of these steps narrows it, narrows it down. And this is, I want. I really should have started, Chad, by saying like, we both know, we all know, everybody who's listening to this, that prioritization is as much art as as it is science. And so this framework provides a way to take the big list and narrow it. But there's still a lot of art involved in this process. So yeah, th- this sorry, a little bit off track there, but uh, yeah, really important that there is this combination, right? That that we can't expect that the science that there's there might be a math that helps us with prioritization. But there's also our knowledge and experience with the customers that impact all this. So exactly very good right. point. Okay, so, exactly. so this step builds on the first one and helps identify what we should be doing with for customers. That's right. Okay. Anything else you wanted to add on step two, the filter request for based on what customer? It's pretty, I mean, it's pretty basic. Like it's not, this part is not that complicated. You know, Savio helps you do this and, I, you know, a little plug there, but like the most sophisticated slash high-functioning product teams that I see out there in the big, bad world, they have a way to do this, whether it's using Savio, whether it's using spreadsheets, whether it's using another tool. But it's it's not a lot of like, you know, seeing which way the wind is blowing. There's a there's a mm-hmm. framework that they use and they have a tool that supports the framework in the process. And so, you know, you really, I would not leave this to chance. I would very much 
be sure that you've got a way to, to do some of this work in inside of a tool. But it's, it's fairly basic. Like if you've got the tool in place and the data is flowing in, this should not be hard. This should take you literally, you know, a matter of seconds to see what do our lost customers, what do our lost deals want? What do our, you know, what our churn customers ask for? What our active customers want? Things like that. Yeah. And, and having that tool, and hopefully it's not an Excel spreadsheet, but I understand a lot of us start there. Having a tool that you can collaborate with is the real value here, right? Because if you are collaborating over this because you have the data available information, it helps us elevate the first step, which is what are our business goals here, and make sure everyone's on the same page with those because that's often where we get misaligned with each other. And then make this information clear, and we can have reasonable discussions then based on what are those objectives, how does that impact what we're hearing now from either sales, customers directly, whatever that source of that information is. So, okay, this is good. Yeah, so 100%. Step three is prioritize further by other attributes that matter. Tell us about attributes that might matter. Yeah, so, you, okay, you've got, let's, let's look at our churn, churn. We're reducing churn. That's the goal. We have a list of features asked for by customers who churned that we have not yet built. So from that list of customers, some of them are ideal, right? They fit into our ICP, our ideal customer profile, and some of them don't. So let's look at the ones in our IC. Let's look at features requested by customers that met our ICP and see what they ask for. And, and see I, that ICP, ideal customer profile. Okay. Or let's look at you know we want to win. Um, we, we want to reduce churn in our enterprise plan segment. So let's look at people who are on our enterprise plan and churned and see what they ask for. Or we want to reduce churn in our in your in our European customer base. Right? There's sort of a variety of ways you can slice and dice your feature request list based on customer attributes. And so that really helps drill down on again, just you know, narrowing the list down to the key set of features that you should build to support the business goal. Good. So that sounds like uh, part partly a marketing segmentation exercise where we're looking at our Customers that we have now, uh, maybe we're trying to extrapolate to customers if we want to, but within the customers we have now, that there's segments within that that we could identify and we might use different strategies to appeal to them, um, both just through our marketing tactics as well as the product features and how we present those features. Like you, your example of the people on the enterprise plan now, maybe versus a, another tier. So, and that's really useful to not think about all customers the same, but Think about you know customers that have a specific kind of problem and trying to help them and really focus on their needs. So here's here's a here's a concrete example. So we have customers in Europe and they log feedback in English. There's a translation layer, so the customer success folks will get feedback from customers in Italian or German or Danish or Swedish, and the customer success rep actually logs the feedback in English. So they they don't mind. They're happy to do that. But we've had customers who've churned because they wanted the the tool localized in German or Swedish. And so if we felt like going into Europe, one nice market opportunity that was underexploited for what we're doing, you know, we could look at okay, let's see what customers in Europe want or customers in Asia, and just take a look and see is this, this multilingual or like um, localization come up a lot. And if it does, you know, we could decide to build that feature in order to expand the market of customers that we could reach. So, you know, sort of zooming out a little bit, you know, once you've, you know, once you've identified your business goal and your sort of broad set of features to identify that business goal, you should be able to sub-segment your, your features down uh, a little bit further in order to understand, okay, what are the features that we should really use to, to sort of drive this, you know, to drive this goal. Good. 
as we're talking through this, as you're talking through the steps, and I'm thinking about how do we actually prioritize feedback from customers for features of a product, one interpretation I could take away is, well, we just need to do what our customers are asking, which is not exactly the job of product managers, right? It's easy enough to get feedback and act on that. But we don't always know if the feedback actually leads to a useful you know, capability in the product. And what product managers tend to care about is, well, what is behind that feedback? Right? What, what is driving that to be asked for in the first place? Because often customers will provide feedback that's kind of in the form of a solution. And if we back up and start talking about, well, what's the actual problem you're having? And a takeaway I'm getting from our discussion so far is, well, what a great way to build closer ties with your customers, right? giving them a e easy path, and you're actually collecting and acting on the, the information they give you. But now you have a, a mechanism that they would expect you to come back and ask more about, well, well, what is that problem? What's the underlying issue there? And building those closer relationships always has great value when it comes to creating more value for the product for them too. Anything off base with what I said? No, it's, it's so true. Like we see... Um one of the most common requests that product communicates to us is, you know, I wish my CS team or sales team was more product minded. So instead of saying, you know, I need a, I need a blue button or I need a red button, you know, the, the CS team would ask the customer, why do you need a red button? Well, I'm colorblind right. and I, you know, so it's really, it's really honing in on the problems. And, and you know, one of the, one of the nice things about when you get down to this, you know, to this sort of level of granularity with prioritization, you should be able to drill into a given feature and see all of the pieces of feedback that the customer has or that the various customers who want the feature have. And so you can sort of understand the shape or scope of what the feature might look like, which is useful for, you know, for the next step, because, you know, it's, it's sort of like a, the Superhuman, which is an email, it's, a, it's a, an OSX and iOS email client. That is, right. which is wonderful. His CEO, their CEO talks about this, like they, they have a process that where they gather this kind of feedback. And he says, when it comes time to build a feature, we basically have a, a skeleton set of requirements from the feedback for a given feature. And so we can hone into that, shape it. We can reach out to customers and ask them to clarify, you know, where it's, where it's unclear. And, and it really helps us build the right thing, hone in on the right problem to build the right solution. Excellent. Yeah, I've heard the CEO talk about that solution some, and it certainly sounds very interesting to help automate some of your email exchanges. Okay, so talking about this customer focus, I see this as a big issue in product management. We don't always start thinking about the customer, and it's actually one of the uh, outcomes, that our, our sponsor for this program, is the Rapid Product Mastery Experience, the RPM Experience. And it's an experience that I take product managers, product teams through, sometimes directors, exec executives. It's nine weeks, meeting once a week for 75 minutes a week. And we build a holistic foundation for product management. And in the process, we see collaboration really improve with the participants that are involved, trust improves. And a key takeaway for most of these groups, in addition to you know, what they're learning, product management actually works and how to improve their performance, is a shift to the customer focus. Because they move maybe from thinking about the engineering specifications or what they can get, get produced if it's a hardware company, what they can manufacture, to really putting the customer first. And it's a big change that takes place. And also I find most product managers haven't had any meaningful formal training to think about product management, right? I'm curious about your journey. It sounds like you got involved on a product management track from developer because of your interest in exploring UI and uh, UX issues and that you dove in and learned about that. Did you do other training? You know, Basecamp certainly helped, gives you some ideas. Other workshops no. or anything? Yeah, nothing, nothing formal. I mean, I, 
I looked at the Pragmatic Programmer, mm-hmm. Pragmatic Marketing folks, sorry, way back in, I don't know, 05, 06. But there wasn't really a lot, like you've really seen an explosion of tooling and classes to help people level up, which I think is is fantastic because, you know, I think product, you learn a lot on the job, but having the principles and frameworks beforehand can be extremely useful before you, you test them in the field. Yeah, it's just a way to accelerate, right? So, you know, I spent 10 years doing product work, not really recognizing even that it was product work. It was just the part of the job, right, as a software project manager. And then when I discovered a framework, which I've built on the same framework I learned from a professional organization, product development management. So, so many aha moments went off in my head, like, oh, that's why we do these things. and Why we do that at this time and in this order and having the framework made a big difference. So for people that want to find out about the RPM experience, how it can really accelerate your work, your team, and your, your product capability in your organization, please go to productmasterynow.com slash RPM. And I appreciate you checking that out. That keeps this podcast going. And it's a great service to the companies that use it. So I enjoy doing it with groups because I see how much of a difference it makes with them. So again, productmasterynow.com slash RPM. Okay, so I think, Kareem, we're up to step four here, which is determine your development budget. Yeah, so this is where, so this is sort of more higher level than, you know, points uh, in a sprint. This is more deciding amongst the three buckets that you could spend your development budget on. So new features or, you know, sort of feature improvements is one. Strategic features is the second and tech debt is the third and so a lot of teams don't do this. It's sort of not really an explicit process, but we find it helpful to say, okay, you know, we're gonna spend roughly 60% of our dev budget on features. You know, we have to address a couple of key pieces of tech debt. It's gonna take up about 20%. And then we've got these strategic pieces that you know customers aren't clamoring for, but we feel like are real opportunities. And we're gonna spend the rest of our our dev budget on that, you know, for this this or this quarter. So you know, I, th- I think that's a, a really, really valuable process because you make explicit what you're deciding to spend your money on. Like I always, when I talk non-technical folks about what product management is um, and, and how to sort of allocate a dev budget, you know, I, I sort of liken it to building a house and you would never give your builder a, a blank check and just say, go to town on this. You'd say, well, I, you know, the, the main level is more important than the basement. So let's make some trade-offs and, you know, leave the basement unfinished but let's spray foam the main level instead of insulating with bat in the basement. And so it, it's it's a very similar process, right? Like you, it's very helpful to just define what is important to you as a as a company and how you're gonna how you're gonna spend your devs. One of the phrases we use around the around the company is is spend your devs wise and just be explicit about you know how you're gonna allocate your your dev budget. Spend your devs wisely. Very tweetable like that. Yeah. And this is where, where gold plating comes from, you know, in software work that if there's time available and we don't know where else we should be putting that time, we tend to make things better and not necessarily better for the customer, just better in a way that we think things could be better. So really important. And again, the, the as we talk through this, so much of this just comes from aligning priorities internally to reflect what we should be doing for customers as well. Excellent. One other piece on, on step four that I think is probably worth um, chatting briefly about, but it's as a PM, it's important to understand how much you want to spend on it. And so the, the way to do that, in my experience, is to get the dev to sketch out where the risks and unknowns are. 
you know, where's the straight line? Where's the dev confident that they're going to be able to get from A to B? And where are the parts that they haven't, you know, tools they haven't integrated with, things they haven't done, and really sort of flesh those out. And so I'm a big fan of not using points, using time to, to estimate. And I don't really care about like estimates to hold somebody's feet to the fire for a deadline. It's more around like, well, this feature is not worth two weeks to me. It's worth one week. So where's the, where's the extra, how do we squeeze the one week of complexity out of it? By eliminating some of the unknowns, what can we what can we trade off to make this thing cheaper and faster? So we can get out there, we can test it, we can see you know how how the market responds, and then and then refine it and improve it. So that's a, a conversation that's very often skipped or had, but not really had. I think for the right reasons. I think the right reasons are figure out how to make figure out how to make sure that you're again you're spending your devs wisely. Figure out you're spending enough money on the feature so that it's worth it for the company instead of you know instead of holding somebody's feet to the fire because they said two weeks. That that part is not really that that useful in a lot of in a lot of software projects. Like when I was working for ESPN and we had to build a fantasy football tool and the NFL wasn't moving their, their season start date. So we made, we had to hit a hard deadline, but for a lot of software, that's not the case. Right. Yeah. And the time dimension just gives us another way of thinking about it too, right? Often getting features out to customers sooner results in more satisfaction, greater revenue, less, you know, whatever the objectives are we're aligned to. So I, I like that. appreciate you adding that the time estimate to thinking through this. And step five is choose the features and confirm with other stakeholders. Tell us more about that one. Yes. So I'm not really a huge fan of roadmaps. We operate in, I'd say, four to six week cycles, sort of flexible. We're still small, so we, you know, we and we run the company, so we can sort of do things in that way. But I think there's sort of two two pieces here. So you're going to build a set of features. You know, sales is going to be interested. Customer success is going to be, you know, the dev team will be interested. CTO will be interested. And so when I share those, the features that are going to be built in the next cycle with those folks, I don't like to do it in the meeting with everybody in the same room. I like to go and sort of pre-socialize the list with the stakeholders and talk through their concerns in a one-on-one basis. And if that's done right, then when you get into the room with everybody, it's, you know, it's a rubber stamp. All objections have been dealt with or addressed earlier on in sort of a a less contentious one-on-one environment. And, you know, one, one way to really make people feel good about the, the features you're going to build is to use the customer feedback to back those decisions up. And so I've been in many rooms where somebody's saying, well, I really think we should build X. I, I just talked to a customer, just talked to a lost deal prospect who really, you know, really needs X, you know, and, and that person could be much higher ranking than me. But if I can go to them and say, well, look, here's the data and 20 of our most important customers, you know, comprising 20K in, in MRR, I think we should build Y. So can you help me understand why we should build X? So just frame it as a question. And, and if you have the data on your side, you know, you might be overridden, but there's only so many silver bullets that a, a senior exec can use before, you know, they start to look foolish and lose trust with their team if you're bringing data. So my, my goal in these meetings is really to have conversations about the data and about what customers are asking for in order to get folks on side. And it, it's a lot more compelling than, uh, it's a lot easier job for me, I should say, instead of just saying, well, I think we should build X and talking to somebody who thinks we should build Y. It, those conversations are, are rarely productive. Yeah. And again, we're trying to align the internal organization and get everyone on the same page about what we are working on, what we're about in the first place, right? What, what our strategy is, what we're about and what we're working on now and kind of where we're, we're going. And, you know, sometimes I see organizations have too many of these pre-meetings, the, the meeting before the meeting, before the meeting, right? And I, I understand having, doing the collaboration with the smaller group of, of key stakeholders and then trying to get everyone on the same page to move forward. And I find that this is just very culturally dependent. 
it, right? It depends on the organization, how that actually happens and just what works best for the people involved. But adding transparency, having the data available and the reasons why we're working on the things we are and then being able to deal with other, you know, conflicting demands as well helps us just all feel good about making decisions together. So I appreciate you sharing the importance of talking with the stakeholders and kind of getting us together. One phrase that I, I find to be very helpful and, and it, it, that I use with my with my family, I have two, two kids, is not right now. And I think you can use that phrase framed slightly differently in conversations with stakeholders, you know, to, to you're not saying no, you're not saying no, that thing that you want is never going to get built. You're, you're saying not right now. And because, you know, here's the, here's the sort of higher level backed by data and backed by anecdote that I can show you on paper. Uh, that's sort of a, a compelling, I found that to be a compelling way to, to sort of head off some of the, some of the conflict. Excellent. As listeners know, we love an innovation quote. What do you have for us? And tell us what that means to you. So I have innovation, not invention. So this is from David Cancel, who's the CEO of Drift and has um, done a lot of, built a lot of amazing software companies in his time. He had a podcast. I think he may still be on it, but years ago, probably five, six, seven years ago, I was listening to the podcast and he, he that was the topic of an episode. And so what he really means is I mean, I'll just paraphrase, I think, or, or my, share my own spin on it. Everybody wants to build a car, right? Everybody wants to be Henry Ford, but there's so much luck and timing involved in, in doing that. It's like capturing lightning in a bottle. And so it's still very hard, but much easier to resegment a market in sort of the Steve Blank parlance where you hone in on a specific set of unmet customer needs and solve for that. And so, you know, David Cancels is a great example. He did it with Intercom. Uh, Intercom was a beast of a business. David realized that they were doing, he could do a better job at driving pre-sales conversations. And he ignored the support scenario that Intercom covers and the product management scenario, product marketing scenarios that Intercom, and he's built a huge business on the back of using bots and conversational marketing through that little chat widget. And so I, I really, I just think that as a founder, I think you're increasing your chances of success significantly. And I think as a product manager, if you focus on, Understanding what customer problems are sort of acute and solving for them rather than trying to build the next car, I think you're going to be successful. I mean, it turns out that before the car was invented, a faster horse was very valuable. That's right. Uh, so <laughs> I, think, I think those faster horses have had their time, right, until the world changed. But I think, you know, we usually live in a time where faster horses are, are more valuable and the world is not changing so quickly. Right. So I, right. I, really, I really like that innovation, not invention quote there. Yeah, thank you for sharing that with us. And as product managers, we should be embracing innovation and creating value for customers. That's what we typically love to do. This tends to be in our DNA, I think. If you're a listener, you probably agree. Thanks so much for sharing that. In terms of your company, resources you have available, how can people find out more about the work that you do? Yeah, there's um, three places. So savio.io, S-A-V-I-O.io. If you are looking to, if you're if using your feature request to prioritize and decide what to build next is a challenge, you can you can reach me there, k at savio.io if you have any questions. I do some consulting work to help SaaS teams improve their trial to paid conversion, and that's at trial to paid. And then you can also find me on LinkedIn and Chad, I can send you that that URL for the show notes later. Okay. And I'll make sure those links are in the show notes. And your consulting work is at trial to pay.com, is it right? Trial to paid.com, P-A-I-D.com. 
Got it. Okay. So those links will be in the show notes, including your LinkedIn profile, because that's an easy way to reach out often and get in contact with you. I encourage li- listeners to do that if you want to find out more about his company and how it might help you too as a product manager. So we, we need to get feedback from customers and have a collaborative way of discussing that information as well among the internal team. So Kareem, appreciate you so much sharing this information with us. For listeners, once again, if you want to go to the show notes and that one-page action guide, just go to productmasterynow.com slash 357. Everyone, keep innovating. Thank you for listening to Product Mastery Now, where product leaders and managers gain product mastery through practical knowledge, influence, and confidence. By listening, you are becoming a product master, creating products customers love. Find additional resources at productmasterynow.com. Keep innovating. Temple University is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the U.S. Through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. visit